0: Special prosecutor Robert Mueller has, for months, been conducting an investigation into the Trump campaign's possible coordination with Russia to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Now, a central figure in that investigation is Trump's former campaign chairman and international consultant Paul Manafort. Manafort made headlines several times this week. First, the New York Times reported that Manafort was told by investigators that he would likely be indicted. CNN later reported that investigators had wiretapped Manafort before and after the election. And then the Washington Post reported Wednesday that in emails Manafort offered to give private briefings on the 2016 race to a Russian billionaire with ties to Putin. His name? Oleg Deripashka. These emails are now part of the Mueller investigation. And before all of this news, Manafort faced money laundering allegations against him and has a history of complicated relationships with foreign governments. So what does all of this amount to? What can Manafort's actions tell us about the Trump campaign's ties to Russia? This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels later in this episode, we'll talk to University of Notre Dame law professor Jimmy Grulé about where Manafort's actions may cross a legal line. But first, we have Pulitzer Prize winner Carol Lenin here on the show. Carol is part of our political investigations team. She works closely covering the Mueller investigation. Carol, thanks so much for coming on the show. Of course. Glad to be here. So let's start really at the beginning here. Who is Paul Manafort and why is he seemingly so central to this Trump-Russia
1: investigation? So Paul Manafort is the former and not very long-lived chairman of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. He's an interesting person because he's now in the crosshairs of special counsel Robert Mueller, who is investigating and going through, pouring over really, all of this man's bank records and his extensive ties to foreign officials and foreign governments, some of which Paul Manafort never disclosed as required by law.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about his relationship with foreign governments. What do we know about those relationships before he joined the Trump campaign?
1: Stemming back for 10 years, Paul Manafort has represented as a private consultant a lot of different interesting and some would argue shady foreign nationals who often have ties to those foreign governments. The most obvious one is his representation of a Ukrainian political party, which was really tied to the Russian government. You know, Russia had a very keen interest in the outcome of the government of the Ukraine and and really wanted to seize control of that country. And Manafort had represented that party for a long time. He'd also had a lot of connections to Russian billionaires connected to the Russian government. And the most important in our perspective at the moment is Oleg Deripashka.
0: So when he became Trump's campaign chair, did he maintain those consulting relationships?
1: Well, he didn't tell everybody that he was maintaining them, but he, he did. And he was interested also in improving or repairing his relationship with some of the people who he believed owed him a lot of money for past work. And one of those people was Darpashka To explain Darpashka he's a Russian billionaire, one of the wealthiest people in the country. And he's associated with... Um, A certain rapaciousness of Russian oligarchs in which they are benefiting from the natural resources of the country and also helping the Putin government achieve its political ends in other countries.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how we've gotten to this point with Manafort. So back in August, you reported that the FBI searched Manafort's house in Alexandria, Virginia. What were the circumstances of that search?
1: So that search is really important because, remember, we're looking at this investigation kind of from the outside and we're seeing the echoes and mirror images of what Bob Mueller is doing based on what we see out in public. That raid tells us that there is some evidence of Paul Manafort committing a crime. You can't get a search warrant without proving to a judge that there is some evidence of this. We broke the story about this raid, and we thought it was significant because it also suggests that Mueller believed and convinced a judge that there was the possibility that Manafort would destroy some important records. We are told that the information that FBI agents seized from his home in Alexandria included something like 17 binders of documents that he was using to prepare for his testimony before congressional committees, and also a lot of information about his personal finances, bank records, accounts he has in other countries that he may or may not have disclosed. The importance of these are twofold. One, did Paul Manafort prepare for his testimony and leave out intentionally something important. And those binders might help answer that question. The second piece that's important is, is there a other element of withheld information in his bank records? Is there something he has not told the federal government that he should have about accounts he has on foreign shores?
0: And this is essentially related to the reasons why he resigned as Trump's campaign chair, correct?
1: It is in one way, what we know is that he departed under a bit of a cloud about his connections to Deripaska and his consulting contracts um, that ultimately had a link back to the Kremlin.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Deripaska and what The Post has reported this week. Explain to us what you've uncovered.
1: So um, what my colleagues, uh, Tom and Roz and I and Adam, have been working on in this story, we have learned that emails in the campaign that have been turned over to congressional investigators and turned over to Bob Mueller in a trove of tens of thousands of campaign records show Manafort speaking in in a fairly brazen way about how he can make money as a result of his campaign role. A colleague of his in the Ukraine is complimenting Manafort and saying, look how important you've become. You know, you're very famous now. You're getting a lot of publicity. And Manafort responds, how can we use this to make me whole? Manafort's clients, some of whom had not paid him, include Oleg Daripashka, this Russian billionaire. Again, with a straight line to Putin. There's some debate about how close Daripashka is to Putin at this moment, but he has been a prong of the Putin government for a long time.
0: Okay, so exactly how would Manafort profit from granting access to Donald Trump on behalf of Dara
1: Well, in these emails, Alison, he describes... Wanting to improve his relationship with Deripaska, allegedly repair it, and also to get what he calls black caviar. That is away. so
0: spy novelly, <laughs> but in this case, we learn that black caviar is actually—it's a Russian delicacy. So it's believed that this term was essentially code for payments that Manafort wanted to receive, correct?
1: These codes are so interesting. And, uh, you know, his colleague in Ukraine refers to meeting with Deripashka, we believe, and investigators believe, and describing Deripashka as the person who gives you the biggest jar of black caviar. And Manafort appeared interested in wanting to get his bills paid that he felt he was owed by Deripashka and others.
0: So would that inherently be a violation of the law if Paul Manafort did, in fact, offer access to President Trump or the Trump campaign in some way? Is that a violation of the law?
1: It's not automatically a violation of the law based on what we know now. There could be elements about this we don't know. um, And so I won't really prejudge this. But I would say that it is um, historically quite unique, the idea that you would allow someone from another country, access and private inside information to a American presidential campaign. Keep in mind, Pashka could not, he's facing some sanctions, he was not able to get a visa into the country. And for years, he has been engaged in a full court press using various political consultants and PR campaigns to try to find a way to get a visa to come into the States, and has been uh, blocked in, in many ways. He has been allowed temporary access from time to time, including, I understand, uh, to the U.N. this last week. But to be able to learn something about a man who would be president would be pretty valuable to somebody like Darapashka.
0: Now, this latest report isn't the first to indicate that Paul Manafort may have potentially violated the law. To learn exactly where the legal lines are when it comes to Manafort's reported actions, we spoke with University of Notre Dame law professor Jimmy Gruley. Jimmy also walks us through FISA warrants, wiretapping, and what may stand out about Mueller's approach to this investigation. Here's Jimmy. So let's talk about some things that we know Paul Manafort has done, and from a legal perspective, how they may or may not lead to his indictment. One thing we do know is that Manafort failed to disclose foreign lobbying. Is that in and of itself a crime that would be typically met with indictment?
2: Yes, it would be. It would constitute a violation of the Foreign Agent uh, Registration Act which requires uh, individuals that are going to be representing or lobbying on behalf of foreign governments to register with the, with the State Department. So it's important that the U.S. government know of, uh, of an individual's interest and whether that uh, person is acting on behalf of a foreign government.
0: And along those lines, we also know that Manafort allegedly laundered money from what was the party of a former leader of Ukraine, using accounts in foreign countries. And Manafort denies actually receiving those payments, though reports of this did lead to his resignation from the Trump campaign last year. So can you explain why he would launder the money and what might be illegal if he's done so?
2: Well, if the money was derived from let's say, public corruption by foreign government leaders. And the foreign government leaders wanted to conceal the source of those funds to make it appear that those funds were derived from a legitimate source or to conceal the ownership of the funds, to kind of distance the funds from the Ukraine or Russian officials. Then concealing those funds by moving them through different bank accounts, through foreign bank accounts, through In the name, let's say, of of a uh, fictitious shell company, uh, that would constitute money laundering or could constitute money laundering under the federal money laundering statute.
0: So if Robert Mueller's team were to seek indictment, would it seem that this was something Mueller was doing to get Manafort to talk about other things he might know? Or would it be to actually pursue criminal charges against Manafort?
2: Well, I'm sure that the Mueller team is investigating the full range. Of criminal activity that Manafort may be associated with, so I don't think that they're limiting themselves to, you know, these foreign uh, registration violations and and even money laundering. But uh, having said that, I'm sure that that they would be interested in Manafort's cooperation. They would want to know what he knows with respect to higher ups that may have been involved in in criminal activity, and so it's not uncommon to use plea bargaining or the threat of prosecution to leverage someone to cooperate and testify for the government, again, in order to prosecute someone that is higher up the chain of of criminal activity. And, uh, you know, there's not too many people higher up on the the chain than the former uh, campaign chairman of the 2016 Trump campaign.
0: Yeah. So then from a legal perspective, what's the best approach for Manafort? Should he cooperate with Mueller?
2: Well, I mean, if if he maintains that he has not committed a crime, maintains he hasn't committed a crime, then he's probably going to see if he can get some sense of the strength of the of the government's case against him and whether or not pragmatically he should even consider entering a guilty plea i mean if if he maintains his his absolute innocence then then he probably wouldn't but but if there is some question or it appears that, that the government does have evidence that, again, with respect to these registration, foreign uh, agent registration violations, that he could be convicted of a felony for those, then that could certainly um, be an incentive for him to cooperate. It, it places him in a very difficult situation.
0: And if Manafort were indicted or charged with a crime in some way, could President Trump pardon him?
2: Well, he could. Certainly the uh, the president's pardon powers are are quite broad. Typically, again, the pardon power is used where the president believes that there are some mitigating factors that perhaps weren't taken into consideration or fully taken into consideration when the individual was was prosecuted and convicted. Or maybe the president believes that since that person has been prosecuted, convicted, and has served time that maybe he deserves a second chance and, and the sentence perhaps is you know too long and he should be released. So, so those are typically the kinds of cases where you'll see the president intervene and use his pardon power. It would be unusual for the president to use his pardon power with respect to an individual that, that was involved and, let's say, indicted in connection with a criminal investigation of close associates of President Trump including, again, members of his own presidential campaign.
0: So let's switch gears slightly. Paul Manafort was initially part of what was a 2014 FBI investigation that looked into the work that some Washington consulting firms did for what was Ukraine's former ruling party. And that investigation, it included a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, warrant that was placed on Manafort, And though The Post hasn't yet confirmed this, it does seem that now a new FISA warrant was issued that restarted surveillance on Manafort more recently. Can you explain what a FISA warrant allows the FBI to do and what it takes to be able to justify one?
2: Yeah, first of all, it's very different from what is referred to as the Title III wiretap or order to obtain electronic surveillance. Under the Title III type of wiretap, the purpose is to discover evidence of a crime. So if the the police or federal law enforcement have reason to believe that a suspect is going to be using a particular phone line to communicate information that's, that's incriminating, that's evidence of a crime, then you'll go to a federal magistrate or a district court judge to obtain that type of order. However, a FISA order, the focus and the purpose is different. It isn't necessarily to obtain evidence of a crime. It requires probable cause to believe that the target of the surveillance order is a foreign power or agent of a foreign power, and that the particular phone line is going to be used by a foreign power or agent of a foreign power. And a significant purpose for obtaining the wiretap is to collect like foreign intelligence information, uh, intended to protect national security. And so here, with respect to Paul Manafort, I think it's quite significant that the FISA court issued a FISA uh, surveillance order Because that suggests that there was credible, relevant evidence to establish probable cause that Paul Manafort was an agent of a foreign power. So
0: those 2014 FISA warrants involving Manafort and the more recent ones that I mentioned, as reported by CNN, those would have been issued by the FBI, not by special counsel, counsel Mueller. But the Mueller investigation, that's led to some other kinds of warrants. Is there anything unusual about Mueller's approach when it comes to carrying out this investigation and his decision to obtain certain kinds of warrants?
2: Well, I think he's been very aggressive. I think that was borne out by the uh, search warrant that was executed at Paul Manafort's home in uh, in Virginia. And that particular uh, search warrant is what is referred to as as a no knock warrant. and so the FBI did not have to knock and announce you know that their FBI agents and their purpose was there to uh, affect this search warrant. And typically, these no-knock warrants from the court where there's reason to believe that if their presence, if the FBI's presence is announced, that evidence will be destroyed before the agents get into the house in order to secure the premises and collect the evidence. So what that suggests to me is that they believe that Manafort is not, or perhaps has not been forthcoming, is not cooperating or not cooperating fully. And they had reason to believe that uh, if they announced their presence, he could, in fact, destroy important evidence. Relevant
0: to the case. OK, Carol, one thing that's been reported is that Trump and Manafort continually talked to each other after Trump became president, that they didn't stop communicating once he resigned as campaign manager. Is that a bad thing for Trump? Could that have some implications?
1: Well, I mean, it's a funny thing to me because Trump hasn't stopped talking to anyone who is <laughs> right. a witness or, or perhaps a witness against him in any of these matters that's been a big concern for the White House legal team and for other defense lawyers. Why have the president constantly in a situation where he can be re-questioned about whether he was trying to, you know, compare his stories or shape up his his account of things with other people involved in those events? The most notable is the Trump Tower meeting, because Donald Trump, as the post broke, that story helped shape the statement of his son about what this meeting was about. It doesn't look good when you have the president and his son comparing notes about an account that they provide to the press, which is ultimately misleading.
0: Which really brings us to other news that broke this week, which is that Mueller has now requested extensive records from the White House. Some might include Trump's private conversations. What can we gather from that step by Mueller? Mueller.
1: So I feel like that uh, roundup of information is totally to be expected. Everything on that list of 13 categories that we reported yesterday is something I would have expected a prosecutor to seek when we have already reported that that prosecutor is looking at whether or not the president or anyone in the White House sought to obstruct the Russian interference probe. Bob Mueller wants to know about whether or not there were interesting discussions in private about the firing of Comey that conflict with Donald Trump's public account of why he fired Director Comey. He wants to know how the White House handled information and a warning from their own Justice Department that Michael Flynn, their national security advisor, was under investigation. Were there private discussions, memos, emails that tell the prosecutor something about the president's effort, if possible, if if it's true, to conceal or withhold information. All of these things go to the issue of, was the president trying to get in the way of a clear investigation of Russian meddling and possible coordination with his campaign?
0: Yeah. So for those listeners who might have Trump-Russia investigation fatigue, do you think now is a good time to tune back in? Do you feel like this is a moment where things are starting to happen?
1: A lot is happening. And I have to say that it's hard for me to think of taking the eye off the ball at this moment. There's so much going on. And Mueller's obviously working very, very fast and diligently. And I think we're going to see a lot of activity in the next several weeks.
0: And one last question on Manafort, really. Do do you think that Trump's Choice to hire Manafort, to hire Michael Flynn, to hire people who have had ties to foreign governments, as has come out later, does that reflect on President Trump's judgment?
1: Look, this president and his team, this candidate, I should say, and his team were, by all standards, rookies in the political game. And that's not debatable. They were hunting and searching for anyone who could help them who had some chops in an election cycle. And to be fair, Paul Manafort did. Michael Flynn, less so, but he was a a serious devotee of the president's political views, especially on Russia, and um, unusual in our country, a very pro-Russia general, uh, wanting to build a relationship. So it makes sense to me that he chose those people. The fact that both of them were trying to Make a lot of money while they were on this campaign and make a lot of money not from Donald Trump or the Trump organization, but from other governments or companies associated with foreign governments is the big worry.
0: So that brings us to our final question. Normally on the show, we ask, can he do that? We ask a question of the president. This week, we are going to ask that question of Paul Manafort. So the question is, can Paul Manafort face all of these allegations and walk away from this unscathed? No. Do you want to elaborate on that at all?
1: I think I should leave it there.
0: (laughs) Great. (laughs) All right, Carol, thank you so much for joining
1: us. Thank you, Allison. You guys can follow Carol Lenning on Twitter at? Carol Lenning.
0: Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mike's. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? And if you liked this so much that you want to experience it live, you are in luck. We have an upcoming live taping of the Can He Do That podcast at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. That's one year after the election that propelled Donald Trump to the presidency. The night will feature special guests like legendary Watergate reporter Bob Woodward, 2017 Pulitzer Prize winner David Farenthold, national political correspondent Karen Tumulty, and a look back at some of the biggest Can He Do That moments of the year. Tickets are on sale now at wapo.st slash That or at livenation.com. See you there. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the exceptional Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. Hi there! My name is Alyssa Rosenberg, and I write a column about culture and politics for the opinion section of the Washington Post. I'm also the host of a new podcast miniseries called The American War. It's a guide to Ken Burns' new documentary, The Vietnam War, but it's also a deep dive on the biggest issues from that conflict that linger with us 50 years later. We'll discuss each episode as it airs with Ken, his co-director Lynn Novick, and many of the other voices featured in the film. Join me for this conversation on how America lost its way in Vietnam, and how Ken and Lynn are trying to help us find our way back. You can find The American War wherever you listen to podcasts and online at washingtonpost.com slash theamericanwar. Thanks for listening.
2: The Washington. Washington, Washington, Washington Post.